All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. Um, however you are joining us, I'm, I'm thankful to be able to do this. Um, let me just let everyone know we do still have the two rooms for kids. So if you uh, have your kids here and, and you can't take them, then, then you can, can go put them in that room. But, but we're glad to have kids here, so don't, don't feel bad. We are, we're, we're, we're happy that they're children in the, in the, the sound of uh, boys and girls. So don't, don't let that make you feel bad. Um, but so let me just begin uh, kind of exactly the same way I did last week by saying it's been a challenging week for our church family. Um, and so last week I said that, and I'm saying that again uh, this morning. Uh, and so this past week we held, some of you were there, some of you I know watched, but we had the funeral service for Art Packard, um, who was a longtime servant of our family. And so that was a, a hard day. Uh, we'll continue to pray for Pat um, and, and her sons and, and many of you that, that knew Art well. Uh, but then we also, we lost Gene, Gene Felberg. And so this was a, a week that was filled with, with ups and downs. And so last, last week when I stood up here, I told you that Jean had had surgery and she was doing well. Uh, well, I got, I got a message on, on the church uh, machine last Sunday. After, I, after the service, I was over there and, and it was Jean's good friend Nancy that said, you need to come up here, there are complications. And, and so the, then we lost Jean a couple days later. Um, so it has, it's been a hard week. Those are two... Um, foundational members of our church. Um, and so it's, it's, gonna be, it's gonna be hard as, as we continue, but um, we're thankful that they are with the Lord. There's, there's great hope for those who die in Christ. There's a resurrection coming. Um, and so there is hope. We mourn, but we mourn and we grieve with hope. Um, and so in, in terms of details with Jean, her, I talked to her son and, her, um, and, and Denise, her, her daughter-in-law, uh, and they both, they, they said that they're gonna make plans for a memorial here at the church um, at the end of this month. And so it's not like we don't, we're not telling you the dates, they just haven't been decided. We'll let you know as soon as we um, hear something. Um, last thing, just update wise, uh, we're still praying for Jason Thorne for Hoagie and Cindy's son. They still haven't been able to go see him. Um, and so we're just praying he, uh, he's shown small improvements, so he's making some progress, but he still has a long way to go. And, and really, there's a lot of unknowns um, regarding kind of the extent of his injuries from his accident. So they're just waiting um, for a door to open so they can go down to Florida and be with their son. That, it's, it's really, I can't imagine as parents, um, their son is in, in this um, state, this situation, and they can't go see him um, because of some hospital procedural things. And so we're just praying for them. Um, and so, so I'll pray for, for those things in just a minute. Um, but just, to, and, and there are lots of other things. I mean, many of you this week have, have mentioned other things. And so um, there are, there are, there's a need for us to pray. Um, I, I was thinking at this time, a lot of life has slowed down, right? The pandemic has slowed things down. And in some cases, it's even shut things down. Um, but the reality is that, that sin, uh, that death, that disease, they're still wreaking havoc in our world and in our lives. Okay, and so we, we shouldn't be lulled into thinking that, that sin and, and Satan are, are taking a break. Also, families are going through hardships, marriages are being destroyed, sin is still alive and well. Our adversary, the devil, is still prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we, we must not uh, lose our, our call to diligence and to, to faith and hope and love. And so I'm thankful personally to be able to gather together to come and pray and ask God to protect us and, and to encourage us um, and so I'm, I'm glad to be here today. And what I wanna do is at the beginning, I normally read a, uh, a smaller passage. I'm gonna read a longer passage of scripture this morning um, as we begin before I pray. And so it's, it's a story. And so uh, 
My kids love stories, and so it's a narrative in John's gospel, and so you can follow along. Um, but, but it's a story where, where we see, uh, we're confronted with death, we're confronted with the rule and the reign of sin, but also in this story, we're, we're, we're put face to face with the majesty of Christ and, and him as the one uh, who is the resurrection and the life. And so just as we begin, I just want us as, as God's people, as a church, to, uh, to behold Jesus as the only one who can offer hope. Um, whatever you're going through, whatever, whatever we're facing as a church, Christ is, um, is able to sustain us and give us hope in the midst of whatever sin and death can do. And so I'm gonna read John chapter 11. Um, and it's verses one through 44. So you can, you can listen um, as I read. It's a familiar story, but, but listen to John's gospel, uh, chapter 11, beginning of verse one. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and she wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was ill. So the sisters, they sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stun you and are you again gonna go there? Jesus answered, are not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he's gonna recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him, but Mary, her sister, remained seated in the house. And so Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, Jesus, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know, I know he's gonna rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know that. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and she called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see, see how he loved Lazarus? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's, let's pray, let's pray together. Lord, you are the resurrection and the life. You give life to dead men and women. And so we, as those who have been awakened, who have been called out of our tombs, who have been given new life, who've been called to be born again by your spirit, we, with Lazarus in this scene, we proclaim that that you and you alone are able to raise our dead hearts. And so we're thankful that you have spoken and called us out. And Lord, uh, connected with that, we are longing for the day when we will be raised with bodies imperishable with brothers and sisters that have gone before us and we will be raised to everlasting physical life in your presence with you forever. And so we're thankful that Jesus has secured this for us and we're thankful for those who, who can face death, us included with great hope. And so we remember our, our brother Art and our sister Jean and we thank you God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ as we remember Art and Jean, we thank you for their sincere faith in Christ. We thank you for their great love for the saints. We thank you for their lives which testified to their love for, for your church, for this particular church. We thank you that we thank you for them because of the hope that's laid up for them in heaven. And so we grieve their deaths with hope. Uh, their end is anything but final. And so we thank you uh, for Christ who is the resurrection and the life. And so I pray that their faith will encourage us. I pray that their examples of service will also encourage us. Father, we pray for for the families. We pray for Pat and and the the boys. Um, And we pray for Jean's family and friends and neighbors who are grieving. Lord, would you comfort them with the hope of the resurrection? Those who don't know Christ, who aren't trusting Christ, we pray that this death, that that your glory might be seen through even these, these deaths. Lord, we pray for Jason. Uh, Lord, often I don't know what to pray. Cindy and Hoagie, they don't know what to pray, but I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that uh, they would receive good news, more good news than, than discouraging news. I pray that you uh, would sustain their faith, can, causing them to, to cast their cares on you. Lord, I pray they would know that you care for them. Uh, Lord, I pray for a miracle. I pray for Jason's recovery and his healing. Uh, and Lord, I pray that Hoagie and Cindy would, would be able to go be with him, to physically touch him and hug him and uh, hold his hand soon. So I pray you'd open a door for that. Lord, there, there are so many needs within this body. I pray for the health of our older members. I pray for upcoming surgeries. I pray uh, for the faith of our members. 
Uh, would you uphold our brothers and sisters by your righteous right hand? Would you be their help and their, their strength? Lord, I pray for marriages and families in our church. I pray for parents to love their children, to teach their children to walk in your ways. I pray for children to grow in, in learning to obey their parents and render obedience as unto you to their parents. I pray for husbands and wives to bear with one another patiently and graciously. I pray that spouses would extend grace and mercy to one another as often as is needed. I pray that spouses would, would flee from self-righteousness and pride. Lord, I pray for humility to mark marriages and families. Lord, I pray that peace, supernatural peace, would mark the homes of our church family. Lord, I pray that, that peace would mark our church. I pray that we would be a united people. I pray that unity would be evident to all within and without this church body. Lord, I pray for our neighbors, both around this uh, this address, but also around all of our homes. I pray that you would use us to reach our neighbors with that, the hope of Christ. Lord, you are kind to us and faithful to answer according to your will. And so we ask that you would do that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, so we are this week, we are in our 12th uh, week in the Holy Spirit series. Um, and so we are, we started, I didn't know how long this was gonna go. Uh, I still don't definitely know how long this is gonna go, but I do kind of see light at the end of this tunnel. Um, and so this is our, our 12th week. If, if you weren't with us, the, the previous six weeks were all kind of one section where we looked at the Spirit's role in transforming us. And so we looked at sanctification and the role of the Spirit in transforming us, specifically from one degree of glory to the, uh, to the next, into the image of Christ as a process that the Spirit works in us. And so, and so we, we looked at all those, those previous weeks were, were really a focus on a, a more personal or individual level, the, the role of the Spirit in the lives of his people individually and things like the new birth. Um, but, but this week we're transitioning to, to, a, more, to, a, to, a, to a more broad focus. Um, and so we're gonna look at the, the focus, uh, we're gonna focus on the role of the Spirit within the church. Um, and so the last two topics, at least for now, as far as I can tell, the last two topics that we're gonna look at as we, as we, as we finish this series on the Spirit um, are gonna be today, we're gonna look at the Spirit as the source of unity within the church, and so the role of the Spirit in unifying the church, and then the, the next topic will be the role of gifts in the church, and that'll take at least two weeks, maybe more, um, but, but those are the last two topics. Unity, which we're gonna cover today, and then Lord willing, in, in the next two, three, four, depending on, on how long it needs to go, and we'll look at the, the role of the Spirit in gifting um, the church. But, but for those of you that, that may be getting weary, that is the light at the end of your tunnel. We're probably gonna be over with this series in a couple weeks. Um, but today, as I mentioned, we're gonna continue our discussion on the role of the Spirit, and we're gonna look specifically at the role of the Spirit in the life of the church as the one who establishes unity. And so, so the, the big idea, the main, the main point of the sermon is simply this, that the Spirit unifies God's people. The Spirit unifies the church. Okay, so, so that's, if there's no Holy Spirit given to God's people, there is no true unity within the church. Okay, so this, without the Spirit, there's no unity, but we have been given the Spirit, and so unity is a mark of the church, or ought to be a mark of the church. 
And so it's a fitting topic as we transition from individual to broad because the reality is that every single believer, as we looked at, possesses the Holy Spirit. And so if you're a believer, you have been given fully, the, f- the full amount of the Holy Spirit at your new birth, at your conversion. And the fact that you possess the Holy Spirit ensures or guarantees that unity exists. And so we have all we need for unity within this church. As New Covenant believers, we possess the Holy Spirit, not partially, but fully and completely, which means that every assembly, every local church that comes together, that, that gathers as God's people, which, which is made up substantively by Christians, if every Christian of every local church has the Spirit, unity is possible and actually guaranteed. And so the Spirit is the unifier of the church. He's the source of unity. And while, while it is, or at least it should be common sense that the body of Christ ought to be united, I, I do think it's necessary for us to be continually taught and reminded of this. So we're gonna look at the, the unity of the church that, that's, the, that, that's sourced by uh, the Spirit. So here's our outline. We're gonna see, first we're gonna look at unity established, then we'll look at unity illustrated, then we'll look at unity displayed, and then finally we'll look at unity and you. Um, so, so that's kind of our, our outline that we'll walk through um, this morning. So, so first, unity established, okay? And so there's gonna be two things that, that, that kind of establish the unity of the church. And so the unity that marks the church and the role of the spirit, right, as we look at that, the first thing to note is that the spirit does not unify apart from the work of Christ, okay? And, and so the, it's not separate. So we're gonna see that the two, two things, the, the two uh, subjects or, or the two points of, of unity establishes the cross of Christ and then the work of the Spirit. And so the, the unity of the Spirit cannot be separated from the cross of Christ. Okay, in other words, the work of Christ on the cross that accomplishes or purchases the peace and unity that the Spirit then applies or ensures, right? Paul lays out that, that, that these two are connected. It's the work of, the, of Christ on the cross and the sending of the Spirit that, that kind of create or establish this unity. So so listen to how Paul describes this in Ephesians 2. And so I'm gonna read verses 13 through 22. Listen how how Paul describes the work of Christ on the cross and then the the, the work of the Spirit. So verse 13 of Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, Paul's writing to Christians, now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, it is Christ, he himself is our peace who has made us both one. And he's broken down in his flesh, right, that's on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. And he's done this, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, so in Christ, one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And that he might, verse 16, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So so this is the unity language. The work of Christ destroys the dividing wall of hostility. It's in Christ, it's through union with him that there is a oneness of the body of Christ. There's not the the body of Christ that's Gentile and the body of Christ that's Jew. There's one body that consists of Jew and Gentile. And so Paul focuses on the peace that results from the cross of Christ. There's one new man because the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed. Now, in this context, it's the Mosaic law. This was what divided. This is the the ethnic marker that, that separated Jews from Gentiles. And Paul says, on the cross, Jesus destroyed this. The thing that divided them 
The thing that marked division was eliminated and destroyed in the cross of Christ. And so as I thought about that, I was reminded of the famous speech by, by President Ronald Reagan. So, so in 1987 in West Berlin, it's a, it's a well-known speech that, that Reagan gives and he's addressing the, the leader of the then Soviet Union, Mr. Gorbachev, and he says, and here's a quote, there's one sign that the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. And then there's all kinds of applause. And then he pauses and he says, Mr. Gorbachev, and you know this, tear down this wall. Right? And then all, all the American flags are waving and people are cheering. And so it's a powerful speech and a powerful principle because Reagan believed that tearing down the Berlin Wall, which separated East and West in Berlin, that was the only thing that, that could move them towards peace. The, the marker of division was, was the, was it, peace was impossible as long as that marker was standing. Peace was impossible as long as East and West Berlin was divided by the wall. And so, so similarly, Jesus, when he dies on the cross, he tears down the wall that marks division and separation. So there's no longer separation, but now there's only union, there's oneness in Christ, in his body. He is our peace. He tears down the wall, not only to make peace possible, it's not like he doesn't make peace possible, but he actually establishes peace. And so the Ephesians 2 passage continues, right? so he took the work of Christ on the cross, destroying hostility, and he continues, and here's where he, he focuses on the role of the Spirit. Verse 17, and he, Jesus came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access, how? In one spirit to the Father. So then you, Ephesians, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22 in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so it's not just the work of Christ on the cross and tearing down the wall of hostility that establishes peace, but it's also the Spirit who is given to those who are united to Christ. So, so, that, so that anyone who believes has access to the Father through one Spirit. There's one Father who's access through one Spirit and make up one body. So the spirit who is given through Christ as a result of union with him ensures peace by creating one new man. And this one new man, as Paul said, is being built as a dwelling place for God by the spirit. And so as you talk about unity has been established by the work of Christ on the cross and the sending of the spirit. And so this is why later on in Ephesians in chapter four, and we'll come back to this later, but Paul in, in this practical um, this exhortation section of Ephesians 4 where Paul says, I'm urging you Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says, You're gonna, you ought to walk, I'm urging you to walk with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. But verse three is eager, here's how you're to walk Christians, you ought to, you're to walk eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so maintaining unity of the spirit in the bond of peace is what Paul says Christians are called to. 
which means that Christians, members of the church, don't create or manufacture unity. We maintain it because it's already been established. Right? If, we had to main, if we had to establish it, it would never happen. It took Christ's death and resurrection in the sending of his spirit, and that has created it and established it. And so as we are brought into this one body, we simply maintain it. And so unity that marks God's people is unity of the spirit. It's created by the spirit, which is why every local church in its very DNA down to its core ought to be marked by evident, visible, and discernible unity. It's the nature of who we are. We are God's people. We are the body of Christ, the fellowship of the spirit. We are to be marked by this oneness. And this unified nature of the church is exactly what we find in the first New Testament church in Acts 2. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 2 because that's where we see our second point, which is unity illustrated. And so as we look at Acts 2, so, so the events of Acts, so as, as the life of Christ ends and he, he's, he's crucified, he's buried, he's raised, um, he, he spends some time with his disciples and then he, he's gonna ascend into heaven. And before he ascends, he leaves some, some instructions for his disciples. You guys go to Jerusalem and wait. And you're gonna be clothed with power from on high that my spirit, the helper is gonna come and, and he's going to empower you and equip you. And, and so you just wait. And so Acts chapter two, right, that, that's the, the, the well-known uh, event of Pentecost. And so as we, as we talked about several weeks ago, the, the, the possession of the spirit, the sending of the spirit is a new covenant promise that is unique to us in, in the, the new covenant age. And so every believer has the spirit. And so Pentecost is often seen as only recognizing the, the significance of the sending of the spirit. So it's like if I said Acts two, you'd say, oh yeah, that's, that's Pentecost. That's when the spirit was given. But there's, a, there's a, a few verses at the end of Acts chapter two that are really insightful in light of the context of Acts chapter two. And you've probably heard the verses before. In fact, the, this, this is a common church mission statement, the, the, the words here at the end of, of Acts chapter two. Um, it's even, it even uh, I litters uh, dining rooms nationwide. So, so if you have a, a daughter or a, a sister, someone who's, who's very shabby chic in their decorations, they, they probably have this verse on their wall in their dining room, right? But, but in our context, it's an insightful verse. And so I wanna read, I'm gonna begin in verse 37 of, of Acts 2, but listen to the end. It's, it's specifically verses 42 through 47 that we're gonna focus on, but, but I wanna start in verse 37 of Acts 2. Um, remembering the context of the spirit has just been given and then notice the effects in the early church. And so here Peter has just finished his, his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2 and, and verse 37 of chapter two picks up this way. Now, now when they, that is those who had gathered there in Jerusalem, when they heard Peter's sermon or his message, they were cut to the heart and they, and, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, so, so there's the, the gospel goes out, 3,000 are added to, that's church growth 101. Uh, but then verse 42, notice, this is the, the verses I, I want you to notice. 
Verse 42, and they, that is these 3,000 souls, this first church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes together, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so do you see, do you see the, the spirit is poured out, people are saved, the, the church is created, and a distinguishing mark of this early church in Acts 2, verse 42 and following is unity. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were united. Whereas before, before they they repent and believe, before they're saved, they're not united in this way. But the spirit comes and unity is the immediate response. They're selling their possessions and belongings and they're they're giving the proceeds to all as anyone has need. And so these 3,000, okay, uh, so-and-so, brother, so-and-so has needs. Okay, I, I, I just sold my, uh, my Instapot. I, I used it at first, but I don't need more. So, so I got some money here. Let, let them have it if there's need. Or, or I sold this. We have a, uh, an old crib, and we don't need it anymore, so let's sell it, and let's do this. Or my old baseball card collection. Right? I, don't, I don't need that. My, my kids collect Pokemon cards. I don't need baseball cards. So I'll sell those, and I'll give those to those in need. But, but there's this unity that marks the early church. They're selling possessions. They're distributing to the needs. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive food with glad and generous hearts and they're praising God. And notice, they're having favor with all people. And the result is the Lord is adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I don't don't think it's a coincidence that a unified church was a growing church. The unity that marked these early believers, the the community and the peace that marked their fellowship, I I, I have to believe was compelling because it was supernatural, it was not common. And so people are seeing the fellowship and the unity of these new 3,000 believers adding, plus some, and they're compelled. I, I wanna be part of that because that doesn't exist in other places in our culture. And so I think that was the compelling nature of the early community. And so I don't think it's too, too, too much of a stretch to say that the unity within the church had an evangelistic effect upon those outside the church. Their common faith in Christ was displayed in their lives together. And so as I think about it in our current context, think about the countercultural message, the, the supernatural fellowship that a church has the potential to showcase. The local church, the united local church gathered around and united by the gospel of Christ enables those who in the eyes of the world, have no other reason for associating together with one another. But a local church can say, hey, we have something in common. The the world sees no similarities, no likeness, but we have Christ, and that is compelling, and that is a display of God's glory. And it's not only that that the the church associates with one another, there's a love and commitment to one another that marks the the, the local church and and is part of its unity. There's a, a commitment in a covenant to one another. And the unity of the church is based upon what is of utmost importance. And the unity of the church must be stronger than the secondary differences. And so as we're united as the body of Christ, 
our union with Christ and our union in Christ must be of utmost importance because we're in a world where secondary causes are dividing everyone and everything. And so if we are compelled by, by these secondary divisive issues, right, we're not gonna be united. And so we, we, we push aside, we, we put under our feet these secondary issues as they create division because we're united in Christ. And that must be the primary source of unity. And so the unity of the church, grounded in the gospel, grounded in Christ, must be stronger than political affiliation. It must be stronger than racial pre- prejudice. It must be stronger than social status. It must be stronger than sports team allegiance. It must be stronger than parental practices or preferences. It must be stronger than personal opinions or personality straight traits. The unity in the bond of peace must be able to withstand these differences and so many more. This means that if, in your view, if your view of the church doesn't allow for you to worship beside a Democrat or to fellowship with a brother or sister of another ethnicity or to love someone who lives in a a different part of town or to share a meal with a Cowboys fan or a host of other things, if your view of the unity of the church, if, if that's awkward for you, If you see someone roll up and park beside you that says Biden 2020 and you think, oh, I'm glad non-Christians are coming to our church. If those are the categories you're thinking in, your gospel is too small and your unity is cheap. Unity that is driven by likeness, by these secondary causes of unity. Unity that's driven by likeness is not supernatural. It's, It's all over the place. It's all over Facebook groups. It doesn't tell anyone, us included, anything good about God when, when our, our unity is around these, these like things that we share. The kind of unity that I want for us, the unity that I think God would have for us as a church is a unity that is clearly the result of an unusual act of God. It's, quote, a unity that has supernatural breadth and depth, and it's a unity that makes the world sit up and take notice. And if it sounds impossible, be encouraged because this type of unity is possible because we have the Holy Spirit, the great unifier of God's people. And so there's hope. We, we can be this type of people. Let, let's look thirdly at, at a few characteristics of this kind of church community this type of unity, there's two aspects or two characteristics that I just want to point you to, unity displayed. And so the two aspects are our unity of faith and unity of practice or, or, or unity in what we believe and how we live. And specifically, as we look at how we live or our practice, it's, it's specifically relationships, but, but let's start first with unity of faith. And so, so as we start here, I just, just to acknowledge, I am a Baptist, and I'm a convinced Baptist. This means I hold to certain things. There are certain tenets of the faith as I interpret and understand scripture. I, I believe it teaches certain things like, like credo-baptism. I, I think the Bible teaches that those who, who can, can assent, who can put their faith in Jesus ought to be baptized. I believe that, that the congregation has authority in leading and guiding the church. I think that every Christian, every believer has access to the Father. And I, I believe in religious liberty. Uh, so, so I'm a Baptist, I'm not Presbyterian, I'm not Methodist, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not Church of Christ, and, and so on and so on. I'm a Baptist. 
And so at first I, I, I want to just acknowledge that denominational differences are important. Okay, it is important. I think denominational differences, the fact that, that I can pastor a church, if I wasn't a pastor, I could attend a church where I could worship in accordance with my conscience and with my convictions. And I'm thankful that, I, that I'm not part of a church that, that requires me to, to baptize infants. I don't, I don't, my conscience couldn't go along with that. And so, so denominational differences are helpful. But even, even though all that's true, despite these differences, we often miss the fact that, that all Protestant denominations are much more similar than they are different. There is similarity that, that is across the board when it comes to Protestant or evangelical churches. Specifically when it comes to what we believe. Christians have, for the most part, since the time of the apostles held to the same doctrine. There are truths that, that have been sustained and have been believed throughout the ages of the church. There has been, from the time immediately preceding the death and resurrection of Christ, the, the time of, of the, the disciples and the apostles and the early church, there has been a, a faith or a pattern of belief, a standard of truth. And this unity, right, the fact that, that we can recite the apostles' creed and affirm all of it today, this much longer, and, and, and even further back than the Apostles' Creed, the, the fact that there is a unified faith that is here today is 100% the result of the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of truth. And so when Jesus leaves the scene, the spirit comes and one of his main objectives, objectives is to guide God's people into all truth. He is the spirit of truth. And so that, that's his job and so we can know what's true. We can't agree with brothers and sisters in the past because the spirit has been present in the church throughout all the ages, confirming this is what's true about me. This is what's true about the person and nature of Christ. And so the spirit was active then and he is active now. And so in 2 Peter 1, the spirit, Peter says, carried the authors of scripture along. In such a way, Peter would say that, that no prophecy, no teaching of scripture was produced by the will of man. And incident was the Spirit carrying men along, writing what the Spirit would have them write. And so, and so there's this process from the mouth of Jesus to his disciples, from, from the disciples and the apostles to the early church recorded in the scripture and passed down from generation to generation that is still with us here today. And so it's remarkable to think that, that here today in, in 2020, we as believers in Christ are able to share the same faith as the first followers of Christ. It's because of the spirit. We share the faith, which according to, to Jude, verse three, this, this phrase, which is often repeated, it's a significant phrase, but Jude chapter one, verse three says that, that we share a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so, so this truth, this faith was delivered once for all. So it's delivered to, to the apostles through Christ and the apostles preserve it for all the saints so that we as the saints today still possess that faith once for all delivered. And so if, if you notice here, here's maybe a, a, an activity or an assignment. If, if you look through the New Testament with, with, with Paul or Peter, you'll often find the, the mention of the phrase the faith. Used in a noun, whether it's someone becoming obedient to the faith or someone forsaking the faith or someone's encouragement to continue in the faith or church being strengthened in the faith. In all these cases, the faith is being used in a typical, it's not the verbal form of faith as in an action. It's a noun form 
And it's references to a common faith. It's the faith. There's no other one. There's the faith. And, and, and as the New Testament understands this teaching, they refer to it as the faith. And it, it characterized the early church. It's a, a set of beliefs, who Jesus was, what he came to do, how the church should be organized. And, and this faith was passed down. And so, so just a few, a few examples. So 2 Thessalonians 2. This is Paul writing Uh, Verses 13 through 15, Paul, or verse 15, he writes to the church. He says, so then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Hold to the traditions. Now, this is not like what, what, when should the offertory be played and and how should we do this or or what colors to the carpet. That's not the traditions he's talking about. He's talking about traditions that were taught, right? This is doctrine, this is truth, this is the faith. And Paul says, stand firm and hold fast to it. You were taught it by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So Paul thinks and understands that there's traditions that have been passed down that the early church is to hold to. That was the standard of faith that the church shared. The church was the place for that truth to be guarded and passed down. Our 1 Timothy 3, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I, if I delay, that you, Timothy, might might know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And so the church, here's how you're gonna behave. You ought to know how to behave. Which is the church of the living God? A pillar and a foundation or a buttress of truth. And so the church is this foundation of the truth, the, the guarding, the thing that guards the truth and, and passes it down. And so one of the, the primary tasks of the, of the pastor or the elder is to protect the sheep. Not, not from literal wolves, but for wolves who would teach false things from false teachers. The, the pastor guards the doctrine, the teaching. And so when false teachers come in, the pastor says, no, that's not true. Get out of here. You're not welcome here because you're teaching contrary to the faith that we possess and we profess. There is a standard. If there was no standard, false teaching wouldn't be, wouldn't be a thing. And so later in 1 Timothy, verse one of chapter four, Paul writes, now the spirit expressly says that in in later times, some will depart from the faith and what's gonna be the cause of their departure from the faith? They're gonna devote themselves to to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through human agency, the insincerity of liars whose consciences are, are seared. And so there's this false teaching that comes through these liars whose consciences are seared and and Paul says they're gonna depart from the faith and their departure is gonna be marked by a believing things that are deceitful and not true, that are outside. And so false teachers, Paul says, are gonna lead some away from the faith and they'll do so by teaching things that are not true. Now I could spend a lot more time here but but, but this is one of the reasons, the last thing I'll say here before we we move on, but, but... this is why statements of faith are really important for a local church. We, we ought to know what we believe, right? This is a congregational thing. We are uniting around the faith once delivered to the saints. And so a statement of faith should express that because a church without a statement of faith is a church without an anchor to hold them in the midst of many false teachings. And it's also a church without a guide to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so a statement of faith, it's not authoritative in terms of determining what the Bible says. That's not a statement of faith. And then say, well, here's what the Bible means. No, a statement of faith, simply it's authoritative in terms of to the extent that it mirrors or aligns itself with the teachings of scripture, it ought to be believed and obeyed. 
And so scripture is the authority and statements of faith are to mirror what the Bible teaches. And so as a church, we say, we, we come together around these beliefs. And so there's unity in what we believe. That, that's why if you join this church, you, you have to uh, affirm our statement of faith. Unity, secondly, is seen in, in practice. And I, I just want to specifically talk about relationships. So, so, so how we live, unity is seen in, in our practice, specifically as we relate to one another. And so the fellowship of the Spirit is something that all believers share. And so there's peace, there's love, there's unity. When a local church comes together and, and commits to one another, the relationships of that local body ought to be marked by unity. In fact, it must be because the unity has been established by the work of Christ and the reception of the Spirit. So it means, so, so when a church comes together, relationships within the church ought to be marked by unity. When, a, when relationships within a local church are marked by division or feuding, that body, that church has either already or is well on its way to forsaking and losing the gospel itself. Because church unites around the gospel and when disunity creeps in and controls, the gospel is lost. And even worse, that body is filled with or at least controlled by non-Christians who are strangers to the Holy Spirit himself. Unity is a mark of Christian fellowship. So divisions and quarrels and gossiping and backbiting and all of the like, these are enemies of the gospel and destroyers of unity. And so there's, there are numerous exhortations in the New Testament against unity and division. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. So, so the church at Corinth had a lot of issues and so Paul immediately addresses one of the first issues. So in verse 10 and following of chapter one, he says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Here's the problem. Paul writes verse 11, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people so that's his intel, that's his insider. Close people have told me that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that I'm hearing that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul, well, I follow Apollos, well, I follow Peter. And he asks in verse 13, is Christ divided? Of course not. And so the divisions within the church are anti-Christ because Christ is not divided. And so Paul appeals to the Corinthians to put away divisions and to agree and to be unified. One ancient church writer commenting on this, this passage says, in the Corinthian church, Satan knew of no better way to dam up the current of blessing than to throw in an apple of strife and divide them into parties. One for Paul and another for Apollos, but few for Christ. He continues, Satan's kingdom grows only by making divisions. And so division is anti-gospel and must not grow in the context of the local church. Church members who cause division or who sow discord are not to be taken lightly. It's not something that other members can simply overlook. Listen to Paul in Romans 16. He says, I appeal to you brothers, at the end of the book of Romans, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Listen to how he describes them, those who create division. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
And so, so avoid them, watch out for them, he says. Or again, Titus chapter three, verse nine, Paul writes, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And, and notice how he instructs Titus to deal with those who stir these things up. Titus 3.10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing, here's why you'd have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Those who create or stir up division have no place in the church and the other church members are to deal with it. Those whose music is in a discord key, those whose constant MO is to, to stir up division and create strife within the body are not to be tolerated. And it's not because they're so evil, it's because the unity of the church is that important. Division destroys. And so relationships within the church are to be characterized by unity. You can't have a united church broadly without a united church individually, relationally. It's part of the Christian calling. And so I mention again, Ephesians 4. And Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. To maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That is the call of the Christian. We ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Which leads us to our, our final, our closing point. Unity in you, or unity in me. That didn't really fit with the outline, the flow, but I'm included. In light of the command uh, there in Ephesians 4, 3, that we're to be eager to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, right? we ought to recognize unity doesn't come naturally. We're, we're prone actually towards the opposite. We're prone towards division. We're prone towards self-righteousness. We're prone to this us versus them mentality. But those mindsets that we're prone to, they, there's no place for those in the church of Christ. Rather, we're to be eager to maintain the unity we're to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. We're to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. We're to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. And so the church's unity is described as the unity of the spirit, which signifies the unity that God's spirit creates. We don't create, yet, we can't miss this, we are exhorted urgently to maintain it. So we can't say, well, God established it, so it's gonna be there, so I don't have a role to play. No, God did it, and you better do it. You are responsible, you're not free of the obligation to maintain the unity of the spirit within your local church. And so Paul calls all Christians, you and me included, to bend every effort, do all we can in order to maintain our oneness. Walking worthy of our calling means walking in such a way that the oneness of this local body is my priority, is your priority. And so the first point of application is simply this. If you're a Christian, you're called to maintain the unity of the body. So if you're a part of this church, hear that. You are called to maintain the unity of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. If you're a member of another church, right, the call is the same, that the context is different, but the call is the same. Every local church is called to unity, and the reality is that every local church sends a message Every, the fellowship of every local church says either we're united or we're divided. And for a local church to proclaim the latter that we're divided is for a local church to cease to be being a church that's founded upon Christ. It's a church that, that, is, that proclaims an anti-gospel. So if our church is proclaiming we're divided, if relationships, if there's always tension and constant backbiting and constant talking, if that's the constant status of our church, we are proclaiming an anti-gospel. And it's because we've lost the gospel. 
And so a divided church proclaims divided and the gospel of Christ proclaims, I died to be your peace. I died to make you one. I died to unify. And so we better pursue unity and maintain unity. It's not optional. It's essential because it's the gospel worked out in the local fellowship. It's required. And so in that Ephesians passage, the remedy to division is for each member to cultivate godliness. And so if you, if you see an issue with the division, the first call is, is to your own self to live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. So, so that, that's, that's a practical thing for you to do to, to uh, maintain unity is for yourself to be humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. But in addition to those, I just have three commitments that, that, that I think would be helpful for us to make in, in the cause of unity of this local church. And, and these, these are, are brief and, and then we'll, we'll close. But, but first would be a commitment to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. A commitment to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So theology matters. What we believe matters. It's important. It's not enough to say, well, well I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't need to think about theology. Everyone thinks about theology. You believe things about God. You believe things about the church. You believe things about the gospel. So it's important to make sure that, that the standard, uh, the, the truth that has been delivered to the saints, that your thinking is in line with what God has delivered. And so commit to, to unifying around the faith, around the person of Christ, around the nature of God, around, around these categories of who God is and how he has revealed himself to us. So commitment to the faith, but also commitment to build relationships, commitment to relationships within the church. Now in our church, we have a lot of healthy relationships. I'm thankful for that. But a lot of our relationships are with others like us. And so I, I would go a step further and say commitment to build relationships within the church that are not normal or not natural. That is where unity is, is displayed in ways that are contrary to what the world says. And so if I get together with, with all the other young families and that's all I ever hang out with, and that's what the extent of my fellowship with other church members, well, I, I, I'm not much different than, than the neighborhood pool or, or the, the YMCA or wherever, the, the, the mops group or, or whatever, wherever young people, the local brewery, wherever young families gather. But when, when I am intentionally building relationships with those who, who I, other than the gospel, have no point of connection with, when I'm learning to love them and care for them, when, when that is evident, that's supernatural. It's not normal. And, and the Washington world says, wait a minute, why is he hanging out with them? And it's not just a pastor's job. It is, it is the believer's job. It's the church member's job to, to build relationships because no matter who is part of this church, no matter how different they are from you, no matter how differently you vote from them, the fact that you're both part of this church means that your similarities far outweigh any difference. And you ought to pursue the similarities instead of the differences. And so commitment to building relationships. And so maybe not now if it's not safe, but, but have others over. Spend time with others. Get to know them hospitality. And then finally, commitment to the gospel of Christ. Commitment to the gospel of Christ. This is the foundation of our unity. And I would say that a church that is drifting towards division is a church that's drifting from the gospel, or at least a focus on the gospel. And so we must not lose the gospel because the gospel of Christ, the, the work of Christ on the cross for me to reconcile me not only to himself, but to other sinners, broken, messed up people that we would become his people, his bride, being transformed into an image that, that we would be presentable to him. That's all of us. We're all broken and messed up. And the gospel speaks welcome to all of us through Christ. 
And when, when, I, when I'm believing the gospel, when I'm holding fast to the gospel, when I'm, I'm in awe of the grace and mercy that's been shown to me, it's hard for me to be divided with, with another brother and sister who's been accepted by Christ. And so these are the commitments. And, and, and pray, pray for our church. Pray that we would be unified. Let, let's close our time together.